This is the hardcore icon, just incredible. And you're listening to Perched on the Top Rope. Now, that's not just the coolest. That's not just the best. That, my friends, is just incredible. The following announcement has been paid for by Perched on the Top Rope. What's going on, fans? It's me here, Lee Walker, and I am here with the hardcore icon, just incredible. Justin, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I want I want to read a Facebook post that you had you had made um, in regarding to when it comes to interviews and just rounding up professional wrestling in itself. Last call. Today is the last day I am taking podcast requests, video shoutouts for birthdays and anniversaries, also pro wrestling bookings. I start a new job this week and will be scaling things down. Um, I have a question for you when it comes to this. Will this affect anything that you do? podcast wise with the russo brand uh no not at all uh we're going to vince and i actually uh finished up yesterday which was funny that uh, my boss gave me the time to uh to do it at 10 a.m so we finished that off and now i'm going to be uh doing it with someone else uh from the brand so um no the the job is pretty uh pretty reasonable and we could record really uh at any time so i'll i'll figure that out okay great because um I'm a big fan of the Russo brand, and we actually just had Vince Russo on. Oh, and, cool! And and he likes and you know he was he made it very aware that he's very selective of the people that he picked part of his brand, yeah. which was uh, which was really cool because there's guys like you, Shane Douglas, Stevie Richards, Ben Hameen, Disco Inferno, um, Taylor Hendricks, and there's some other people involved too. Um, but everyone can. Uh, Go check out the Russo brand. Just incredible. Here has his own podcast on there. Um, now you've worked everywhere: WWF, WCW, ECW, TNA, Ring of Honor. You've gone over to Japan a few times. My, my one question is: Have you ever regretted never wrestling for New Japan Pro Wrestling? Um, that's a good question. Uh, not really. No. Uh, my experience with all Japan was was okay. Um, but, um, you know, it was really tough, uh, being married. I, I had a young child at home. Um, I still have uh, two kids that, that are with me. So in my other one, my oldest is, uh, at university. So it was just a lot uh, doing 30 day tours. I mean, you know, it was ridiculously long and it felt like it would never end. So, uh, I don't regret it. I, I love, I, I don't regret not being booked for new Japan. Uh, I enjoyed the time, uh, just because, you know, I wanted to knock that off bucket list kind of a thing but uh, other than that no not really all right all right um and, and you know speaking of that um as i said you know never work you know never having worked for new japan is there anyone in the business that you didn't get to work with that you really wanted to oh god um really the only one that i i mean i'm sure there's there's a lot of i really think of it but the one that I would have loved to just share a, a ring with uh, would have been Ric Flair, um, you know, in any capacity. So I, that would have been something uh, that I that I wanted to do that I never got the opportunity to do, you know, because he was one of my heroes growing up, uh, you know, as a kid. So, you know, that was it. I got to work with Shawn Michaels in the ring. I got to work with, you know, Razor, Scott Hall, uh, you know, the list goes on, Undertaker, you know, Kurt Henning. So, <clears throat> excuse me. But uh, no, that would that would be it, definitely nature. 
Yeah, and and speaking of The Undertaker, he was just recently on Joe Rogan's podcast. And and on the podcast, he he did admit that there are times that WWE is hard to watch. My question for you is, uh, having worked with The Undertaker, what was working with him like? But also, what are your thoughts on his comments? And do you think WWE took notice of him saying that? Um, first off, I mean, working with Taker was really, really cool. Um, you know, he was nowhere near, uh, I, I worked with him actually in 94, um, and he was nowhere the, uh, superstar that he is today. So, uh, and you know, um, it was very easy, but it was also in a limited, uh, you know, limited thing. I was a jobber at the time, uh, enhancement talent, as you call him. Um, so I really didn't get to do much, but, uh, you know, he was still in the process of becoming that that huge, huge, uh, megastar that he, that he is today. Um, now what he said on the Rogan podcast, I listened to the whole podcast and, um, he's right in a way. Um, he's right about a lot of things and maybe, uh, it's age, maybe I'm 47 years old. And I guess we sometimes tend to glorify our generation as being, you know, the better generation. Uh, my parents did it with music. Now I do it with music to my kids you know, the garbage you listened to back in my day, you know, my music was so much better, you know, so uh, I, I could see that, but, uh, you know, I, yeah, watching Raw is really hard. Um, I've tried, you know, to watch many times and it's just, it's just different. Um, and one of the things he really said stood out, um, when Russo and I uh, talked about this a lot on the AEW podcast, you know, um, and we he watched, I guess, uh, the 98 Royal Rumble, for example, and he said the guys there were so much bigger in size, um, like real bigger, you know, big men. And he said the smallest guys in the Royal Rumble were like the headbangers. And even the headbangers were, you know, six foot something, 200 pounds, 200 plus pounds. And um, I guess the point of, of everything is today, it's OK to have thinner guys, guys that are, you know, 150, 160 pounds. That's not the problem. It's. Now it seems like the whole genre has become much smaller guys. I mean, this is pro wrestling for us. I mean, the way we look at it. And I always uh, was drawn to by big men, you know, six foot five, 280 pounds, not just your common average. You know what I mean? Uh, that, that added to, for me, the spectacle of these Titans. And now you just have, you know, it seems that there's a lot of young guys and gals. And they're all, you know, very similar in, in size and shape. And some of them don't even look like they work out. So I guess that's kind of uh, what he was what he was talking about. And he's right in some uh, aspects, you know. Yeah, and I understand that because when I met Adam Cole, uh, I'm 5'9", and I'm 220 pounds, and I towered yeah. over him, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I understand that. And, and you know, speaking of, of 1994, that year, um, I, I'm going to go back a little bit. In 1994, you were doing television and house shows for WWF as PJ Walker. Yep. You, at the time, the, the, being a talent enhancement prior to the Aldo Montoya character. Now, you wrestled on tel- a television taping for WWF Superstars on March 28th. April 9th, you wrestled in World Championship Wrestling, yeah. teaming with, with Randy Hogan receiving a tag team title match against the Nasty Boys. And I, I had asked Randy Hogan about this match um, because the Nasty Boys are known for their uh, their hard-hitting um, style. Two days after that match, 
you wrestled Jeff Jarrett on WWF Monday Night Raw. So I have a few questions here. One is, what was that one-time experience like in WCW? Um, it was very weird for me because um, WWE uh, back then, WWF, was so different um, in just the way they organized things. Um, and I knew everyone in WWF, the, the backstage talent, the, you know, the agents, as we called them back then, uh, people in the office. Um, it was it was just a much more professional uh, experience, and also like, you know, you, if you had a question, you could ask someone, and you'd know where to go. In WCW, I, I barely knew who was in charge, um, you know, and where you got your payday. It was a, you know, you didn't see anybody. Um, there was really, you know, you saw production trucks and people. This was also at the Disney Studio. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, um, but yeah, it just felt very. Um, very weird, very uh, almost like unprofessional at times. But uh, I guess that comes. A lot of people have said that that I've spoken to that it's uh, completely polar opposite to uh, WWE, just as far as infrastructure and and stuff like that. You know, you really did not know who was the boss. You know what I mean? And where you go yeah. to WWE, you know very well who the boss is, and uh, and even people underneath him, the Pat Pattersons back then of the world, or. Uh, you know, Chief J. Strongbow was also uh, somebody that was heavily involved. Uh, J.J. Dillon was head of talent relations uh, when I was there. So you definitely knew chain of command, uh, et cetera. And in WCW, like I said, it was like Jody Hamilton was the only guy that I spoke to. And uh, it was really, uh, really just, you know, weird. That's the best word I, way I can say it is weird, whatever that means. You know, okay. but it wasn't it wasn't WWE. That's for sure. OK, Um now, how are you contacted for this match in WCW, and what was WWS, WWF's thought on this? Um, they never said anything to me. Um, I was uh, approached by Paul Roma, uh, funny enough. I was friends with Paul uh, in those days, and he lived in Connecticut. So uh, we all trained out of this one wrestling school, and Roma would come down once in a while and uh, get in the ring with us. And Paul was uh, working, I think, as one of the four horsemen for that brief period of time. And he's like, you know, PJ, do you want to come down with me? Uh, and actually on that trip, it's funny, I was myself, uh, Paul Roma, and uh, Steve Austin and William Regal were the guys that are, were in the car. So uh, that was the first time I met Steve and, uh, and Regal as well. So it was, uh, and from that aspect, it was a fun trip. But uh you know, um, it, I got everything done through Roma. So, yeah. Okay. And and did uh, WCW want you to come back for more matches? Because like I said, it was April 9th. You had this match in WCW. And then literally two days later, you're back in WWF. Yeah, no, I was uh, never asked back. Um, and I think that's just, again, I think that's just the way they, uh, the way they do things. I mean, Roma, I think because Roma brought me in, um, I never got to meet any, uh, like I said, the real agents and stuff. It was kind of like, you know, my name wasn't going around like you would think, right? Um, most wrestler, uh, wrestlers know wrestlers from working with them, and the agents just know the boys from, you know, guys that are in their company. They're not out there, you know, looking for young prospects like you would think. So it was just a real odd situation. And, um, you know, and it's really, uh, at the time, I didn't see it, but you know, WCW had their guys and it was very, very uh, line in the sand and uh, WWE had theirs as well, even for jobbers. So 
the WWF never even mentioned it to me, to be honest. I mean, I didn't have a contract at that time. So to me, it was like, you know, payday's a payday. So, and nobody, okay. uh, nobody mentioned it uh, to me ever, to be honest. All right. And that was actually going to be my, my next question, because um, as you had just stated that you were under contract at the time, did this one-time appearance in WCW, do you think in any way, shape or form might've helped you get a contract with WWE at the time? I'm not sure. I, I honestly don't, don't think so. Um, you know, I always had a good relationship with, uh, with Vincent McMahon. Um, and that's going to sound weird because, you know, Vince today is very much an enigma. And from what I hear in the media that he doesn't really see that many people. Um, I've been in uh, situations where, um, like with, when I did, uh, that work with Brian Lee and, uh, and Undertaker, Mark, Mark Calloway, you know, I spend a lot of time, uh, with Vince and those guys in a, in a situation where, you know, you could get to know people. It's not just five minutes or walking by the gorilla position and saying, thank you. Um, when I was signed, he approached me and we walked outside and spoke on a balcony, you know, so back then he, uh, took, definitely took more time to speak to the wrestlers. So, um, I don't know. I don't know if anybody, it might've been, uh, you know, I always hear stories that WWE had people watching from all angles to kind of see who was coming up. So, but to my knowledge, I don't think so. Okay. Okay. And, um, knowing what I, I, I've known from previous interviews with you when it comes to, uh, your WWF contract, you actually had in your contract that you couldn't, go to WCW at one point. Yeah. Um, do you know if any other wrestlers in WWF had this same stipulation in their contracts? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, I, I would imagine that, uh, that some guys have had some stuff like that. Um, for me, it was just a, uh, it was kind of a weird situation too. And I think that was directly because of, of Scott and Kevin at the time. Um, with the power that they were uh, that they were getting with you know being friendly with Bischoff and stuff like that, especially Kevin. So uh, for them, I think it was just for WWE giving me you know you can go to ECW, not WCW was just more of a you know it's going to look bad, right? Like everybody from WWE is going over there. So I think it was just more of a heads up, and they started doing that with more and more guys, you know. Okay, and. If that stipulation was not in your contract and hypothetically you did go to WCW, how do you think your career would have panned out? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I really, I don't think I would have uh, done half of what I did in ECW, um, which to this day, it's amazing. You know, I spent three years uh, with the promotion and in those three years are the years to this day that I, you know, 20 years later, I'm still, you know, still talking about they're still bringing it up to me and it's something like you know even the catchphrase uh is still something that i use uh so those three years really uh kind of made the you know made just incredible made me uh at least in the eyes of uh, people in the business so um you know i don't think they would have done anything like that and i would have just been um you know another name lost in the shuffle there okay I'm, i want to get the ecw i want to i want to go back even before 1994, uh, okay. when you first started with WWE, your first match was actually episode seven of WWF Monday Night Raw against Lex Luger. Oh, so wow. 
what was it like to make your your debut for WWF and have it be on Monday Night Raw, which is still a new show because it was only the seventh episode in? Right. Yeah. No. Uh, literally, it was. Uh, I mean, it was insane. It. Was, I was. I'd never been more nervous, and uh, just the realization being in a WWF ring. Um, it's so much bigger than any other ring I'd ever been in. Um, the lights were so bright and, uh, you know, 10 feet away from the ring is the table where Vince McMahon was, would sit, you know? So, uh, it was just a, a surreal experience and the guys back there, I mean, Randy Savage was in the locker room at the time and Yoko and just the size of those guys was like, that's what I mean. And I think that's what Mark meant as well. Um, those guys were just so intimidating. I was scared to death and I was just such a young kid, never working live television, you know, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was just surreal, you know. Okay, and you know, uh, part of being uh, the talent dance man at that time is is PJ Black. You had just said that you you know Yokozuna and Macho Man. What was it like to work with the likes of like Yokozuna and Nikolai Volkov and and, and those guys at that time? Um, it was cool, man. I mean, the more I look back at it, the cooler it becomes. Because, hey, it happened so long ago, and uh, some of those guys are just legends, you know? So, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I, I mean, I can't, uh, I don't even remember the guy, the amount of guys that I worked that were uh, just incredibly talented, you know, and superstars all all in their rights, you know? Like, uh, I got the pleasure to work with Kurt Henning, you know, Mr. Perfect. That was awesome. Um, like I said, I worked with The Undertaker. Um, you know, just the Rougeos. So, just so many... Uh, so many cool guys, you know? Yeah. And, and, and speaking of the Rougeos and, and uh, you know, later we, we see, um, you know, Rougeau become the Mountie yep. and, and he brings in, you know, now known as PCO. Yep. What are your thoughts on the resurrection of PCO's career? Because the man is doing moves he's never done yeah. before, even when he was 20 years younger. Um, I, I, it's, uh, extremely surprising, not because of him. I always knew, um, how good he was. I mean, he was so good that, you know, especially for a guy, his size, uh, the moves he could do back when I knew him. And I mean, I even brought him into, uh, I don't know if I brought him, I think Paul just brought him in. Uh, and I wanted to work with him. I offered to work with him, uh, in ECW that one or two times he came in. Um, so his resurrection, uh, surprised me because of his age, but, um, the, the character and, um, is, is awesome. Um, but his, his desire for this business, his love for this business is really amazing, you know, and, uh, I'm glad, you know, because he's, uh, he's a super nice guy and, um, you know, it's good to see somebody in their fifties still at it at such a, uh, you know, such an incredible, uh, incredible pace and still doing, like you said, moves that, uh, you know, kids are doing. So uh, that's impressive and very few and far between that will ever do that, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is one question that I, I love to ask everybody. Um, we're going to touch base on some stuff you just talked about too. I was a, personally a huge fan of Owen Hart. Okay. Uh, so what was it like to work with Owen? And and do you have any rib stories where he might have ribbed you? <laughs> um, yeah, oh, I were, you know, Owen was great in the ring. Uh, he, you know, being trained by uh, Keith Hart, 
and Bruce Hart up there uh, as well. You know, kind of, I always had that link uh, to the hearts in that, in some degree. But uh, one of the ribs that Owen would always do, not just to me, but to a lot of people was, uh, you know, we'd fly overseas. We'd be in London, for example, and we'd get in at crazy times, you know, uh, you know, five hour difference from the States. And we'd just be getting into our rooms, maybe two or three in the morning. And all of a sudden, as we're getting ready to go to sleep, Owen would take the lineup of everyone that was on the flight and the room numbers. And he'd call everyone and say, oh, you know, would you like breakfast? You know, whatever. And then we'd be like, nope, we don't want any breakfast. We're tired. We're going to sleep. Five minutes later, okay, uh, would you like toast with that order? We didn't order, you know, and just he'd keep doing, he'd rib himself, keeping everybody up, but also keeping himself up, calling everyone. So, uh, yeah, Owen was always good for uh, one or two of those uh, on any given European tour. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now when it comes to, to ECW, um, you know, you had, you had just brought up working with, you know, some of the guys in WWE, but also in ECW now. Um, when it was Eastern Championship Wrestling, before Shane Douglas, you know, had the, you know, the NWA 10 pounds of gold and then threw it to the ground and became Extreme Championship Wrestling. During Eastern Championship Wrestling, we saw, like, the likes of Hawk, Jim Neidhart, Mr. Curtis Hughes, uh, a lot of like former WWF, but also WCW names um, in the company. But then as it transitions to extreme championship wrestling, we see a lot of those names leave. And we, you know, we see a, that's when we see a lot of the up and comers such as Taz, Tommy Dreamer, Sandman and stuff. The Dudley boys in like in 96 really start to, you know, make an impact on the company. Um, so why is it that you think that we see a lot of those veterans leave? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I think a lot of it would probably uh, be money, you know, um, and Paul just being Paul, at times he was not the easiest to, to deal with. Um, that would be what I would think. Or maybe they had other, you know, other opportunities. But in those days, you know, if it wasn't WCW or WWE, um, ECW was still Eastern was still not a necessarily like this huge name but in philadelphia there had always been uh even before uh eastern championship wrestling there was tri-state wrestling and stuff like that so um philadelphia was always uh hopping with with wrestling um more so than any uh, any other parts of the country at that time but uh i i would i would honestly think it probably money you know or better opportunities in other places you know okay all right and um one of the things that we see in, in ECW, aside from, you know, that shift and everything is uh, you come in and, and at first you, you used a couple of different names, you know, you stuck with the PJ Black again, and then you went to PG 187. Um, so, so what made it for the, uh, and how has it pushed it, it to become just incredible? Actually, um, I used PJ Walker, not uh, Black. Oh, PJ Walker. Yes. I'm sorry. PJ um, Black is uh, the other, yeah, the other guy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Um, but no, believe it or not, I always wrestled, uh, if you go back, um, my debut in uh, ECW was against uh, Chris Candido as Aldo Montoya. That happened on Friday, on a Friday night. And then Saturday, um, Heyman uh, mentioned me wrestling Jerry Lynn for the first time. And they called me, I believe, 
was the day they called me Justin Credible. And uh, yeah, I think for if I'm not mistaken, I'm going to look at it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that I only use that uh, those other names uh, in USWA, uh, okay. not necessarily in ECW. But yeah, somebody else mentioned that to me. But uh, yeah, uh, Justin Credible from day one. And uh, Paul Heyman didn't come up with Justin Credible. Um, the guy that wrestled in ECW, I don't know if you remember him, uh, Bilvis. He did like the Elvis gimmick. Yeah, um, yes. he, yeah, he was the one that came up with the just incredible name and then um, pitched it to Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman uh, liked it, but he said it's not for you. Hence, paying him $500, that's what rumor has it, to, uh, to buy the name from him to give it to me. So, yeah, that's how, uh, that's how it all came about, you know. Okay, awesome. Now, how yep. are you able to use uh, the? Uh, how are you able to use the Aldo Montoya gimmick in, in ECW, having just come from WWF? Uh, well, a Paul easily, uh, you know, had no problem doing stuff like that with Vince. Uh, you know, they had the working relationship going on at the time. Yeah. Uh, and two, it never, uh, it was never on television. Okay. So uh, it was literally one of the things where I showed up, took the mask off threw it into the crowd and said, you know, I'm sick of being a cartoon character and uh, something like that, but that never made air. Um, so it didn't really matter. You know, you can get away with that at, at house shows. And like I said, ECW was still uh, glorified independent, you know, at the time. So uh, yeah, it was never a big deal for, for WWE to get involved at least. Okay. Yeah. And we had done a uh, interview previously uh, for, for perched on the top rope here with, with my podcast yeah. And we we had talked about how if there was no Aldo Montoya, there would be no Justin Credible. Right. So I have to ask, uh, while in WWF under Aldo Montoya, I mean, you you, did, you got an Intercontinental Championship match with Jeff Jarrett. Yep. Yep. But what did you ever become frustrated with the character in WWF? And um, did you um, did did that affect how? how you performed in the ring at all? Um, I was very frustrated, especially, um, you know, in 1997. Um, I was really starting to have some of the best matches of the night on the road. You know, uh, usually I did, uh, well, you know, I did about mostly B-towns, but some A-towns, and that's a huge difference. B-towns are the small auditoriums, amphitheaters, gymnasiums. They still ran those, and the A-towns, Towns were obviously uh, your civic centers, your large-scale 20,000-seat arenas. Um, but still, I was having some of the best matches on the entire card. It started to really get into the flow of touring, of working. I started to really gain confidence in my ability to, to go out there and call a match with anyone. You know, um, And I went to Paul, or not Paul, excuse me, I went to Vince in the summer of 97 and I asked for my release because, you know, Kevin and Scott were having so much success with the NWO and my contract would have been coming up in like a year. And it just, uh, you know, that's when Vince said no, uh, sent me to USWA to learn how to work as a heel to then be brought back up to the W. That never happened. Um, so I stayed in uh, USWA for six weeks and the last day that I was there, uh, Chris Candido, Paul Heyman, Tommy Dreamer, Sandman, uh, RVD, and Sabu were in Memphis and to do like one of their 
they were doing an angle with Jerry Lawler. So they were there for that, the, the, the ECW squad, as it were, um, to, to kind of go on Heyman's side in uh, Memphis territory. And then Candido just kept telling me how great it was there and uh, that they were doing big things. They were going on pay-per-view, et cetera. So I was like, well, you know, what do you think? He goes, well, Paul, get you out of your contract. And as long as you don't go to WCW and come here, Vince won't mind it at all. So lo and behold, I guess Paul went to Vince and uh, said, look, you know, you're not doing anything with this kid. I'll sign him. He won't go to WCW. He'll stay with me. And that's what we did, you know, and it ended up being the best move uh, that I ever made because I went to Paul Heyman and within a year of being in ECW, I was making more money for ECW than I was from WWE. So that says a lot, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and and speaking of ECW, um, you, you had just brought up that, you know, they were just going to get into pay-per-views and everything. How important right. was it for ECW in those sort of aspects to compete with WCW and WWF at the time, not just when it comes to pay-per-views, but also when it comes to merchandise, the CDs, because WWF started producing, you know, their music right. on the CDs and stuff, yep. but also the toys in the video games. How important was it that for them to, to compete with? Um, I just think, yeah, I mean, Paul started to really, look at other ways alternative ways to make money we were very much a traditional pro wrestling company where you know we would run tvs and uh, we'd run house shows and there was money being made i mean ecw was uh even though the venues sometimes were not the greatest um but you know they held a thousand to twelve hundred people and paul was selling out everywhere he went for a long time there were very few flops uh, from an attendance point of view from that era. Um, so he, but he still wasn't able to compete financially with, um, you know, with keeping guys in house, you know, so he had to explore, you know, the, the, the toys that, you know, we finally got done the video game with the claim and stuff like that. It was just uh, wrestling was hot. And, uh, Paul wanted to be able to, you know, make money, not just on traditional uh, house shows and, and TV tapings. He wanted to really expand and uh, be able to pay the wrestlers uh, enough that they would want to take ECW as a real alternative for uh, for a job. If you're, you know, a big name somewhere, it would uh, entice you to take a less, you know, lesser schedule. I was working uh, Friday nights and Saturday nights for ECW, sometimes Sundays, but rarely. And I was making towards the end uh, $2,500 a week guaranteed. That's $10,000 a month, you know, $120,000 in WWE. My last year I was making uh, 75,000. So by, yeah. So by doing all that stuff, uh, going down different avenues of merchandise, video games, toys, it allowed Paul to make more moves. And even still, obviously that wasn't enough because, you know, money was just being thrown at guys from WCW, uh, till the very end. So it just, uh, it was just the way, um, you know, the way it was back then, right? All right. And it was uh, very um, competitive in, in all aspects, really. Yeah. And, and uh, speaking of the, the figures and stuff, uh, you know, figure collecting has become a really big thing uh, amongst professional wrestling fans. As you can see behind me, I've got my Hasbro yeah. bar here. I've got my Just Incredible signed Kendo stick above me. So nice. you were uh, recently 
you know, had posted on Facebook probably about a year ago, when it comes to the figures, you were looking for an extremely rare figure that you had posted. It's one of your just incredible figures of the ECW line. Um, now they're of the shirts that you had had made of the, the, with the figure, they had a black shirt, two of them had a red shirt, but there's an extremely yep. green shirt. Yes. Have you been able to find that figure and, and how much do you know about that figure? Um, from what I understand, uh, they never saw the light of somebody that uh, is involved in, you know, that collects and knows that stuff. Apparently none were ever made that I, that I'm aware of, you know, I find it hard to believe because obviously they took the photograph of the damn thing, but, uh, I guess they were never boxed and, and issued to anyone that I'm aware of, which is a shame because that would be a heck of a piece to own, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know if you were still there. Yeah, so but nothing, nothing yet. No, nobody, uh, nobody has found one. Okay. Yeah, because obviously there's one made because there's a photo. So if it's right, you know, somebody has it somewhere in a basement or something. Uh, probably that created, uh, you know, created it or something like that. But what are you going to do? Yeah. Now, uh, you took, you know, in, in ECW, your finishing move is honestly my favorite one of my favorite finishing moves of all time um how did you come up with putting the twist uh, on the tombstone pile driver um you know like good things in wrestling it was just a mistake um i was doing a spot and this was uh, with jerry lynn on my debut in ecw as just incredible um we did a spot where he picked me up for a tombstone and uh, I wiggled, wiggled. I got, he put me, you know, on my feet and then picked him up. And just the momentum of it, as I went to jump, I just said, eh, twist with it. It's uh, the momentum kind of made me feel like twisting at the time. So it was kind of no skin off my back. And I thought it, looked, it was cool. And it just became the corkscrew tombstone, you know? And uh, like it just, it happened. And uh, cause originally I was going to do a, um, like a face plant uh, move, uh, like a spin DDT, but we both landed on our faces, like on our bellies. That was going to be my finish. And Paul uh, said, from now on, do the do the tombs the spinning tombstone because it looked great. Because originally that wasn't the finish; it was uh, the the flat uh, spin DDT bump. So uh, yeah, totally by accident, dude. Yeah, and, and and even then, that 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 flat DDT move, it was still awesome to see the, with the spin and yeah. just how it, it it was a ddt but again it had its own twist it had its own flavor to it which was really cool to see i i enjoyed that as well and you know former former two-time ecw tag team champion former ecw heavyweight champion um so what was it like you know after all those years you know you spent in wwf to, you know, getting, getting this recognition to, you know, hold these, hold these championships. Um, what do you mean like, about the championships? You know, what, what was it like to, you know, just get that recognition? Oh, oh yeah. Um, well, the recognition was, I mean, I'd never held the title before. So uh, the first tag team uh, title was cool, the championship. Um, but the one that meant the most to me, obviously, uh, to this day, it still does, was being world champion. 
and I'll and I'll explain why really quickly. Um, you know, belts you win, you lose. Like many people say, you're not really winning anything in this business. It's predetermined. It's a work. But what it does mean, and what it meant to me, and why it usually is so special for guys and gals that win, you know, women's titles, men's heavyweight titles, the title up top, uh, because you get to represent your company at the highest level. You know, you're the main event. You're the one on the pay-per-view posters. You're the one that, you know, gets to close the show. That mean, that meant the world to me, um, striving so hard and attaining success just by going into the WWE at a young age. But then to be world cha- world champion for the third biggest promotion, you know, um, that was huge. That was huge. And it just made me feel good, gave me the confidence um, to do so much more. And then I was riding very, very high uh, as far as going out there every night with the world title and being damned if I didn't have the best, best matches, whether it was a house show or pay-per-view or TV. Gabe Sapolsky uh, wrote somewhere, or he said 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 it somewhere uh, during, um, I'm not sure if it was, I think it was during my title run um, before he was booking for Ring of Honor, uh, chronologically speaking, that out of all of the world champions in ECW history, I was the hardest working and best ECW champion from, you know, the time I did it only because like, because I'm talking house shows everywhere. I was going out trying to have four or five star matches with anybody. And I was trying to, to emulate Shawn Michaels, who was a hero of mine, because Shawn would always go out there regardless of uh, what the event was and work really hard. And I was going to be damned if I didn't do the same thing. So uh, that's what the, what was kind of driving me uh, to perform at a high level, you know, in those days. All right. Awesome. And uh, during that time, I always thought that your promo work was always spot on. Um, now, while at one point, while you were the ECW champion, there was talks about putting sign guy Dudley, who at the time was Lou E. Dangerously, playing off of Paul E. Dangerously with WCW because there was even a photo you know, you're you're standing on that middle rope in the middle doing, you know, your, your thing waving up high and he's up there with you. Yeah. Uh, so whatever happened to that pairing? Uh, I just never went anywhere and I'm not sure, I could be wrong, but uh, I think that was uh, going to be, it was an idea that they had with uh you know when the company was sort of on its way down and uh it might have been out there during the carino stuff um you know the last pay-per-view if i'm not mistaken i could be but uh you know it was after the hammerstein around there where jerry lynn and myself were having three-way matches uh for the belt when i think carino had had it at that time so i think it was around something like that that they were kind of romancing but the company i think um you know, didn't go further than that, obviously, at the time. So I think that if the company had gone somewhere else, uh, it would have been something along those lines. Because they were also talking about uh, myself and Steve Carino as doing the new Impact players. And that never came to fruition as well. So, Okay. And uh, another question that I, I had asked uh, Sign Guy Dudley about when it came to, you know, you two working together was the fact that also at the time while he was Louis Dangerously, he was also uh, part of the, the new Dangerous Alliance that had formed in ECW. Yes. Uh, how do you think guys like yourself as, you know, with, with Lance Storm as the Impact players, 
would that group would have fared as like a whole faction? Um, I thought it would have been interesting. You know, you never really uh, know until until you do it, you know, or until you have the, the fans really get to see it and react to it. That's one thing so fascinating about COVID um, is you can't really judge who's over. You know, you're only getting who they they want you to, to see. And, you know, back then we really got booked and put in angles because, hey, this guy is the one that's getting cheered the most. This is the guy that's, excuse me, selling the most T-shirts. We're going to go with this guy. This guy's bringing in numbers. Um, with Now with COVID, we're, we're, a lot of that is is lost with no audience. You're really not seeing that. And also you're not selling uh, you're not touring, so you're not selling, you know, Austin 316 shirts like you were back in the day when, you know, like Steve was over and he was on TV every week. You'd see, you know, Austin 316 everywhere because people would love, they, they buy those shirts, the majority of them, um, at the house shows. And, you know, and when you're traveling all over the world, you know, everybody at the click of a, of a phone can buy merchandise, but you're, you're so much more apt to buying something at a live event and that's how you sort of judge things so the way we judge uh wrestlers today if they're over or not is really based on opinion not fact of the fans giving you theirs so to speak you know yeah and um speaking of the impact players we see you guys have one last appearance but at this time you know ecw is is no longer the invasion angle has is going on you and lance storm get to team together in wwe and and i i have asked and talked about this before you had a match with edge and christian on raw to the point that paul Heyman on commentary even brings up the impact players are two former ecw world tag team champions world champions yep Yep. Uh, Lance storm held almost every title in WCW prior to coming back to WWE and everything. So how come, you know, with, with all this being mentioned with Paul Heyman on commentary, how come we didn't see more of the impact players be part of WWE? Um, That's a great question because I still ask that to this day. Um, I I don't know. Lance and I were certainly not doing anything other than uh, sitting, you know, behind Steve Austin with the cast of another 10 guys that aren't doing much either uh, with the Alliance. Um, and right there, also, you had, it was the only time as well, I think, that we ever uh, wrestled uh, in ECW or in WWE together. Um, I, look, I just honestly didn't think they cared. I really don't. I mean, they, they had a tag team that fans would have enjoyed to see up against the Hardys, up against Edge and Christian, the Dudleys, um, and it would have tore the house down um, and nothing. It just goes to show you too just how stacked they were with talent when they where they had something so duh, right? You know, in front of them. Neither Lance nor myself were doing anything. Um, and not try to revisit the those moments, you know. And I also think that's Vince in some way saying that doesn't matter to me because they never got over in WWE. It was somebody else's gimmick, therefore I don't care. You know, you, you saw it with Dusty Rhodes, for example with the polka dots, you know what I mean? He was a joke in WWE. 
Um, a lot of other wrestlers uh, always get undercut by WWE, even if they were super over uh, in WCW or even in ECW. And the only real, look at what they did to Taz, for example, you know, they buried his guy. The only one that truly made it and got over were the Dudleys, in my opinion. I mean, there might be another one or two, uh, maybe Van Dam, of course, but the Dudleys were the ones that really, you know, made it up there um, for, you know, from the jump with a, you know, ECW gimmick, not a WWE gimmick. So, yeah, it's very rare that that happens. Yeah, uh, and, and totally understandable. Now, I'm going to go off base here a little bit. Uh, I want to ask a, a question. And at this time, MTV wanted to get in 